It is not good for the man to be alone. In fact, in the Hebrew text, there is a very strong adversative. Loto, under no circumstances is it good for Adam to be alone. God said it was not good, so he made Eve. An Apsir Konegdo, a helper who exactly corresponded to him. It was God's initial statement that she was equal to Adam. Welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is the senior pastor at Community Bible Church in Beaufort, South Carolina. We're in the third message of a three-message series dealing with gender roles in the church, part of our bigger study out of 1 Timothy. So far, Dr. Brogy has addressed some of the prohibitions God places on women in the passage out of 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 8 to 15. As we rejoin Dr. Brogy, let's now take a look at what role God has for women in ministry. So having spelled out a woman's adornment and a woman's submission, Paul now goes on to describe a woman's design. Again in verse 12, But I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet. Now every single word in that verse is important. I almost made this a four-part series, and I just was going to preach on verse 12 today. You know, I prepare every week, and I can't share half of what I, I suppose I'd like to share sometimes. But let me highlight a couple of important things. First, this word allow. If you do a word study on the particular Greek word and you see its usage throughout the Bible and even in literature outside of the Bible, you'll see in every instance it refers to something that one really wants to do versus something that they have to do. By his choice of words, Paul is saying, I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority, even though they really want to do that. Now, that was a problem in Paul's day, and it's a problem in our day, because then and now, women want to teach and so to take authority. And God warned in Genesis 3.16 that that would be the tendency of a woman, to want to take the role of her husband, but she was to be under his leadership. And so in the church, you have women today who are also discontent with their God-given role. And so they seek to reach what they consider to be a more important position by taking over the authority that God has given to a man. But Paul is saying, I do not allow them to do that even though they may desire to do that. When the body of Christ is assembled, when men and women are gathered and the scriptures are open to teach doctrine, God is ever so clear that he has given that role to men. Nowhere in the New Testament ever is any woman ever presented in the role of teacher. Nowhere. And so what have we done? We've established a new norm for our day that has absolutely no biblical support and has a direct biblical prohibition. And so Paul says here in verse 12 that a woman is to take and to teach is in essence to exercise authority. Now you see those two words, exercise authority. It's a single word in the Greek New Testament, and it's a rather interesting word. It's a, a word that's actually found just once in the Bible, what we call a hapax legomena. So you really can't go and study that Greek word in other verses to see how it's used. But you can go and coin a Greek literature outside of the Bible. And in every single instance, it describes someone who wants to usurp or take over or exercise authority. 
And um, I find that interesting because many of these women Bible teachers will say, well, this is what the verse means. I do not allow a woman to teach or to exercise abusive authority over a man. Another, in other words, it's okay for a woman to exercise authority by teaching the Bible as long as it's not abusive authority. Well, there's not a single example anywhere in all of Greek literature where that word has that meaning. Not one. I guess they just made it up. In fact, if Paul were talking about abusive authority, then he would be speaking to men as well because it would be just as much a sin for a man to exercise abusive authority as it would be for a woman. So you don't have to be a Greek scholar to figure that out just by reading the verse, just by reasoning. Let a woman quietly receive instruction with entire submissiveness. But I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet. Now, her silence is the silence of not being a teacher, and her subjection is the subjection of not being in authority. And you cannot separate the two in the New Testament because the role of teacher in the New Testament was an authoritative office. That's why a synonym for the word teacher is rabbi. And a rabbi held an office of authority, as did the teachers in the New Testament church. So in Acts 13, you see the teachers commissioning Paul and Barnabas because they have authority. And when the men preach in the New Testament, they preach with authority. I mean, the unbelievers are amazed that they speak with such authority, having never been to their schools, but they, of course, had been with the Lord Jesus. They are to preach with authority, and God gives the teacher authority. And in the case of Priscilla in Acts 18, you have no exception, because when they spoke to Apollos, they were in their home, and she was there with her husband. Now, there's nothing wrong with a godly woman instructing a man in private as long as her husband is present, as illustrated in Acts 18. But to jump over 1 Timothy 2.12 and to set Priscilla as an example to be a, of being a woman pastor is to grossly abuse the Word of God. There, is not with a <coughs> there were not with a congregation any women pastors anywhere. Now, when you deal with Apollos, of course, he was not even a believer yet. He had an understanding of truth, but it was inaccurate. He had not fully embraced the realization that the Messiah of the Old Testament had come in Jesus Christ. And so a woman in quietness is to learn when the church is assembled, a woman is not to assume authority in the church and to try to take the place of a man. Now, this does not mean that a woman does not have any kind of teaching ministry in the church. When we come to 2 Timothy and later to the book of Titus, we will see that women have a very clear teaching responsibility, especially as it relates to women and to children. Older women, we're told, are to teach younger women. And Timothy, of course, was taught at home by his mother and his grandmother. But that does not mean that she can assume the authoritative role of teacher, which God has dictated to a man. To teach is to exercise authority over that. And the reason I belabor this point is because there are some women teachers today who argue that they can teach because they are under authority. Oh, my pastor, says one traveling evangelist speaker, 
has given me the authority to be the teacher that I am. It's okay for me to lead these cruises and to hold these conferences with men present. And all I would say is that no pastor, including this one, has any authority to give a woman authority that God does not give her. He doesn't have any right to say, well, you're under my authority, therefore you can violate the word of God. There's no way you can come up with that position except by wrangling with words and doing a great injustice to the Bible. You ask, well, are you saying that women do not have the gift of teaching or leadership or shepherding? No, I am not saying that. There is nothing anywhere in Scripture that would say that a woman could not have the gift of pastor-teacher or that she couldn't have the gift of teaching or that she couldn't have the gift of leadership. But there is a big difference between the gift and the office. The Bible is very clear that the gifts of the Spirit are given irrespective to men and women alike. Women have these gifts and they need to use these gifts of teaching, leading, and shepherding with other women and with children. And there's plenty of room for a lady to exercise her gift to the fullest expression to the glory of God if she does it in the Lord's way. In fact, before we're done, we're going to learn that in the pastoral epistles, especially in Titus, that God has a curriculum for the ladies to teach. The problem that I've observed with so many women Bible teachers today is that they teach just like men. They teach the same topics, deal with the same issues. They do not teach the Bible, though, as it relates to the divine God-given curriculum that the Lord has given to ladies to teach to other ladies. You know, I don't hear many, in fact, almost none of these women teachers who travel around the country who write scores of books, talk about the need for their sisters in Christ to stay at home with their children, to be keepers at home, to raise those children in the precepts and admonition of the Lord. I don't hear them exhorting older women to teach the younger women to carry out that function. What I hear women saying when they come back from some of these conferences is I'd like to be a traveling evangelist or a traveling Bible teacher just like her. But what I'd much rather hear as a pastor is that they come back with a much higher and more noble goal, coming back saying, you know what? God spoke to me through that lady and I need to deepen my commitment as it relates to teaching other women and at first discipling my own children. But unfortunately, one of the reasons most of these ladies cannot teach that is because they did not live it themselves. And so to have a ministry focusing on the needs of wives and mothers is virtually impossible for them unless they're willing to swallow their pride and say, you know what, I didn't do it. But they don't do that, and so they are expanding their ministry to men. You say, well, what about women on the mission field? Well, we need women on the mission field but not women who are in the mission field in violation of Scripture. I received recently one newsletter from a missionary family asking for additional funds so that they could hire a nanny so the nanny could come in during the day and raise the kids while she was out having a ministry. And what she needs to understand is that her ministry are those three precious children that God has given to her. Her home and her children and serving as her husband's helpmate is her ministry. And depending on her season in life and how well she is doing in that area, God might want to broaden her ministry to include other women and children. 
but God would never call a woman to teach and exercise authority over a man on the mission field because God's will never contradicts God's word. You say, but what about if there's a shortage of men, as is often argued today? Well, those on the mission field have no right to violate the Word of God. Paul was a missionary, and he had a number of missionaries who traveled with him. And if there was ever a need, as was in the first century in the expanding church, to have leadership, it was then. I mean, the pragmatic argument, if it was ever valid, would have been valid in the first century as the church was being launched. Paul could have said, well, we have all these women coming to faith, and so why don't we just put them in charge until we get some more men? But when there's a shortage of men, Paul's example, I believe, would be beseech the Lord of the harvest for laborers. After Elizabeth Elliot's husband Jim died, along with his four missionary colleagues trying to bring the gospel to the Aka Indians, Elizabeth Elliot, who is a lady that I greatly respect and esteem, she was the only biblically trained person left who could speak the Aka language. But she was so convinced that she could not violate 1 Timothy 2.12 that she refused to become a Bible teacher over those men. And so, kind of like Priscilla, she took one of the Aka men along with another man present and she answered his questions from the scriptures so that he could go and teach the word of God to that congregation on the Lord's day. Much like Priscilla, she would not step up to the preaching, but she didn't necessarily mind answering and instructing the preacher. Now, ladies, don't get carried away with that. <laughs> but doing it God's way is a high and holy calling when you understand it rightfully. God has a different role for ladies, and we need to respect that. You know, women are just different. I didn't hear any women bass singers in the choir this morning, did you? I mean, I don't know of any men who are having babies. They are different. And listen, ladies, it is the lie of the evil one that what I do as a pastor is a more significant and an exalted position that you ought to seek. If you had any idea of the grief and the heartache and the pot shots and the concern and the burden that God gives me as a pastor for his people, you probably wouldn't want the job. Now, I'm not talking about these teachers who are in ministries who fly through for an hour or two and everybody loves them because they don't have to live with them. I'm talking about people who come in as men of God, called to the office, as modeled in the New Testament, where you dig in long time and you get involved with the people. And if you really understood what a biblical man of God is called to do, I think you might appreciate all the more God's call for you as a woman. Ladies, stay in the role that God has called you because it's your privilege to be in subjection, understanding that God has given someone to care and shepherd and lead you. So when Paul speaks of a woman's design, notice first her design as illustrated from creation. In verse 13, he tells us about her design as illustrated from creation. Notice, for it was Adam who was first created, and then Eve. Now, some people take the prohibition of 1 Timothy 2.12 to say that Paul was nothing more than a crusty old bachelor and that he was against women. 
But those of us who hold to the inspiration and authority of the Word of God know that Paul's teachings did not come from himself, but by the Holy Spirit as he was moved along to write the Bible. Still, others say that Paul's prohibition was a local problem there in Ephesus or one that was culturally bound like foot washing or head coverings. Well, that's impossible. Because Paul roots his argument for the role of women in the created order. He says, for it was Adam who was first created and then Eve. The chronological order of creation proves that Eve was not intended to direct Adam. God did not create Adam and Eve at the same time out of the dust of the ground, though he could have easily have done that. God did not make Eve first out of the dust of the ground and then take Eve's rib and make Adam, though he could have done that. For it was Adam who was first created and then Eve. And the word first, protos, used throughout the Greek New Testament, speaks of first in rank. Hold your finger here, will you? And let's go to the book of Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2. To Genesis, the Greek title that's put on this Hebrew book, means beginnings. And in Genesis chapter 2, in the book of beginnings, God spells out his role for men and women. And he says so much here, but in Genesis 2 and verse 18, if you'll notice, then the Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. Okay, Lord, then what are you going to do about it? Well, this is what I'm going to do about it. I will make for him an ape ser konegdo. That's what the Hebrew text literally says. Translated here, a helper suitable for him. And out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the sky and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever Adam called them, it stuck. Now, it's popular to say that back then the cavemen, of which Adam must have been one, was suffering from a rather advanced degree of retardation. They were not nearly as smart as some of us who have all these letters after our name. You know, Adam was just a dumb, old, stupid fella. Well, I don't think he did all that bad when I read this text. You know, there goes a hippopotamus. There goes a rhinoceros. There goes a giraffe. I think he was pretty bright, especially since when he saw that critter the second time, he had to remember its name. If anything, before the fall, men were a whole lot smarter than we are today. He names them all, but there's a problem. Verse 20, and the man gave names to all the cattle and to the birds of the sky and to every beast of the field, but, uh-oh, here it is, for Adam there is no ape ser canegdo. There is no helper suitable for him. By the time all the animals had paraded by Adam two by two, it must have dawned on Adam that he was terribly alone. And God was using this through the biological kingdom to show Adam his need. Then he needed one who would correspond to him. Okay, Adam has a problem. What are you going to do about it, God? Well, surgery, verse 21. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and he slept, and he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh at that place. And the Lord God fashioned into a woman the rib which he had taken from the man and brought her to the man. And so the divine anesthetic wears off and Adam has something to say about it. And the man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. 
She is one just like me, with certain improvements, of course. She is flesh of my flesh. Whatever she is, he is. Whatever he is, she is. He is fully human, she is fully human. He is made in the Imago Dei, she is made in the Imago Dei. He is responsible directly to God for his soul, she is responsible directly to God for her soul. She is fully 100% equal to man, bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called, and there's a little play on words in the Hebrew text, she shall be called Isha, woman, because she was taken out of Ish, man. She shall be called women. Now, contrary to popular opinion, that word woman does not derive itself, etymologically speaking, from the English phrase, woe to man. No, it's actually from an old Anglo-Saxon word, our English word. It came from the Anglo-Saxon word, womb man, W-O-M-B-M-A-N. But it's kind of hard to say womb man without spitting, so we dropped the M-B, and eventually it just became woman. But that is the man with the womb, she is the womb man. Now, here comes this very important verse here in verse 24. For this cause, a man shall leave his father and mother and shall cleave to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Now, have you ever wondered what Adam and Eve knew about mothers and fathers? I mean, why did God put this in the Word of God? Well, not for them, but for us. Obviously, this verse has nothing to do with abandoning your father and your mother. Not only does the natural realm tell us, but Scripture spells it out that when you're born as a child, you're totally dependent on your parents. But gradually, as you grow older, there's a kind of balance that comes into play. But eventually, they get old, and we, as we'll see in Timothy's epistle, the first one, we are to take care of them. This verse has nothing to do with abandoning your father and mother. Then what does it mean? Well, among other things, what you're looking at is the authority in God's Word for a civil religious ceremony that we call marriage. A covenantal agreement made by a couple when they officially leave their first loyalty, mom and dad, in order to have a new first loyalty to one another. That's the thought. A man shall leave his father and his mother and shall cleave unto his wife. And then that favorite verse, verse 25, that you hear preached in evangelical churches all across America, and the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. They were naked and unashamed because they knew that every part of their body was the artistry of God and every function was ordained of God. And so in these verses, Adam learns that it's not good for him to be alone. It is not good for the man to be alone. In fact, in the Hebrew text, there is a very strong adversative, loto, under no circumstances is it good for Adam to be alone. God said it was not good, so he made Eve, an apser conegdo, a helper who exactly corresponded to him. It was God's initial statement that he was equal or that she was equal to Adam. Now, listen, long before any culture on the face of the earth declared and taught the equality of men and women, Jews knew it because God said it right here in the Word of God. 
This document penned by Moses 1,405 years before Christ speaks of the full equality of women and men. It's wonderful. It's right here in Scripture ever before the modern feminist movement found it. And it's a beautiful picture of our first parents in the garden with the blessings of God upon their life, a woman equal fully to a man. Now, nowhere, anywhere in all of the Bible do you find any other doctrine than the equality of men and women. Adam was formed out of the dust of the ground. Eve was formed out of Adam and for Adam to be a helper corresponding to him. And I might add that in 1 Corinthians 11, Paul gives the balancing truth that while the woman was made out of the man, now man is born in and through the woman. So neither are independent of one another. And so when you come back here to 1 Timothy chapter 2, and Paul says, but I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet for, and you ought to circle that little word, it's a causal in the Greek New Testament, it means because, he's saying here's the reason why, I don't want a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, why? Because it was Adam who was first created and then Eve. A woman is not to exercise authority over a man by teaching in the church because it's the opposite of submission and it is the opposite of God's created order. He didn't make Eve the leader, he made Adam. So Paul's number one reason concerns the priority of creation. But as we just looked at and documented from Genesis chapter 2, priority does not mean superiority. Priority simply refers to God's order and God's role for men and women. It's not an issue of equality. It is an issue of leadership and authority. So reason number one concerns God's design is illustrated from creation. Reason number two is her downfall as illustrated from the fall. Her downfall is illustrated from the fall. Look at verse 14. And it was not Adam who was deceived... But the woman, being quite deceived, fell into transgression. Now, the second argument has to do with Eve's fall into sin. And when you read that, ladies, it sounds kind of like fighting words, doesn't it? I mean, it sounds like a put-down, but it's not. Please understand, nowhere does Paul or the writer of the Hebrews, anywhere in those books, say or teach that a woman is mentally, morally, or spiritually inferior to a man. He's not saying, oh, look what Eve did. Shame, shame, shame on Eve. No, what he is really saying is that it was Eve who was deceived, whereas Adam sinned with his eyes open. He wasn't deceived at all. That's why the responsibility for the fall is laid on Adam. Paul tells us in Romans, it's not in Eve that all die, but in Adam all men die. To listen again to today's message in its entirety, use the Search the Scriptures app for smartphones and tablets, or visit us online at searchthescriptures.org. You can also order a CD or DVD by calling 877 787 and for today's program, request number 1TM6. Tomorrow we'll conclude our look at what God's Word says about women's roles in the church as Dr. Brogy teaches the truth from 1 Timothy and we search the Scriptures.
for thousands of years, no place on earth has been more precious to God's people than the land of Israel. It was here that God first chose to bring the Messiah, and it is where he will usher in his second coming. Nothing compares to visiting the places you've only read about. For those serious students of the Bible, a trip to Israel adds depth and interest to every page of Scripture. Search the Scriptures Israel tour is far more than a vacation. It's a spiritual journey that will impact your faith in an intense way. I'd love for you to go with me to Israel September the 28th to October the 8th. If you would like to have information, you can go online to stsisraeltour.com. The price is inclusive for everything. Airfare, hotels, three meals a day, tips, everything. 